Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to, Ma- to the Madison area and the surrounding communities. I'm Madison Delier, a student at East High School. Thank you to all of our listeners. Your support help- helps make Labor Ra- Radio and all of the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Mike Bernhard, a member of the IWW. Today we discuss recent legislation and how it will affect children and families in our state, including cuts to child care and potential changes in child labor laws. We also share an update on the struggle of workers at True Stage, formerly CUNA, celebrate a win for Madison teachers, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Madison Teachers Incorporated successfully negotiated a wage increase for teachers that keeps up with the cost of living. Labor Radio talked to MTI President Michael Jones. My name is Michael Jones. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I am the president of Madison Teachers Incorporated, specifically the teachers unit. What is the latest in negotiations with MTI and the Madison School Board? Very fortunately, the school board offered its employees the full amount of the cost of living adjustment. So that's 8% set by the state and we happily accepted. So we have an agreement pretty early heading into next year, which I think has helped alleviate a lot of stress. How did you go about accomplishing this? It was a multi-pronged campaign. We started working on this since last year. Last year, we didn't meet our goal. We got 3% when the state cost of living adjustment offer was 4.7. We did a lot of organizing. We organized our members. We organized people in the community. We did a lot of training. Our union really worked hard to try to bring as many people in on the organizing piece. We also waged a pretty successful public campaign in terms of connecting why these topics are important to the health and vitality of our schools. We make that connection between our working conditions and our children's learning conditions because they are the same. Our Madison community has come through and our board very graciously listened. We had good conversations and we continue to have good conversations because this is a continuing discussion. What does the accomplishment of this increase mean for teachers? It's twofold. One, there's obviously a financial benefit in terms of being able to keep up with inflation. Anyone who lives in Madison or Dane County knows everything's getting more expensive. Everything is going up. So just to be able to provide that cost of living adjustment has allowed people to still maintain a livable wage, especially our hourly employees, because we also secured a $5 base wage increase for a majority of our hourly staff last fall. With those two things combined, we are going to see less turnover in our district that leads to more stability. The other one is just kind of the message in terms of us building trust, us being able to say, hey, we're going to work together and do right by each other. We're going to have to talk about how our district and how our community and how our state support and finance public education. 
you need to have acts of building trust. And this was a strong trust building action and event that helps us have more fruitful conversations down the road. How long does the contract last? It's for one school year starting in July and going until next June. That's the way our contracts go year to year. Is there anything that you want listeners to know? This is a victory for everyone, not just employees. And the more we're able to work together, the more we're going to be able to solve bigger problems and smaller problems because we know we're going to do it together. Anything else you'd like to add? Large thank you to anyone who who signed the petition, shared the petition, spoke out, spoke to the board. We're going to need that energy statewide. That was MTI President Michael Jones. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. True Stage, formerly CUNA, continued to stonewall the OPEIU Local 39 this week. The local returned from its international convention in Philadelphia with the full support of its international union. AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler, speaking at the convention, made a point of calling out True Stage for their bad behavior. Richard Lanigan, president of OPEIU, indicated that he will contact unions that own credit unions to enlist their support. While the parties met last week, the company declined to meet this week. Meanwhile, the union is considering its options. True Stage has new executive leadership, and perhaps the parties will find a way forward. Labor Radio will continue to report any new developments. Next, state teachers union leaders help explain how the current state budget battle ties into a long-standing right-wing effort to undermine public education. In what was announced as an historic compromise, on Tuesday, Governor Tony Evers announced that in exchange for increased public school funding and a start for a state-administered shared revenue program, Republican legislators will get their dream of expanded state funding for schools outside the public system. Evers said on Tuesday that the, quote, small bump, unquote, for independent charter and private voucher schools was worth it. But the reaction of teachers unions across the state was less sanguine. According to a Facebook post of the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association, the MTEA, Ingrid Walker Henry, the union's vice president, said of the compromise, quote, a bad deal is a bad deal. You can't shine it up and make it better. When you come into a deal and end up going so far backwards that multiple constituencies are telling you this is going to hurt, it's not belt tightening. No, you are decimating us. We may not survive, unquote. On Monday, Kim Kolhas, the president of the American Federation of Teachers Wisconsin, the AFT, addressed some of the implications of the current funding plan at the regular monthly meeting of the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, in Madison. Labor Radio spoke at length on Wednesday to Kolhas, who talked about the implications of the deal and also the long history of charter school and private school voucher expansion. The governor and the Republican leadership have come to an agreement on its it was SB 330 and AB 305, which allows for districts and private education to see an increase in funding support through the state. The concerns that we have about this is that the increase for private education is significantly higher than the increase for public education, and public education still has some barriers as far as their funding resources and how they are able to obtain the money, and the funding that is coming from the state level is significantly below inflation. So this budget does not even allow the districts to maintain what their current funding levels are when you calculate inflation. It's hard to understand the back and forth over school funding 
formulas without diving into the different ways public and private schools are reimbursed. And this gets hairy. Kohlhaas explains how one factor is that schools are compensated for student enrollment at the beginning of the year, but if a pupil leaves or is pressured out of a charter school, the money stays with the charter. We basically put a dollar amount on every individual child, and then where they go to school, that is how much that school will be reimbursed or paid. They want the money to follow the child. But there was actually an amendment that if we were going to do that type of a structure and the money is to follow the children, that that should also follow after the third Friday count which the third Friday count is when all of the schools count how many students are in their buildings and in their programs, and that is the calculations that the state uses for funding. But if the child moves throughout the year, including going from a private school to a public school, those funds do not travel with that child. So there was an amendment to actually have the funds travel with the child all year long, if that were the case, and that amendment was shut down. So this really is about getting money into private schools early on in the school year and not really providing the support needed in order to educate a child throughout the year and their schooling. The deal came with an announcement there will be big increases in local school funding. Well, not necessarily, Kohlhaas explains. Also, the districts are funded through their local property taxes and referendums. And this legislation that was signed by the governor this week does allow low-revenue districts to be able to increase that funding. There are some districts that will not qualify for that increased funding, and the districts that do qualify still have to bring it to the voters for a vote. So the conversation about there being a billion-dollar investment in K-12 education is the potential to be a billion-dollar investment, and it allows districts to receive additional funds, but it is not a guarantee. Charter schools are schools effectively outside of the public education system, often for-profit, that claim to offer a different learning experience from regular public schools. Then, since 2013, all private schools, and most of these in Wisconsin, as they are in most of the country, are religious schools, are eligible to get state vouchers for tuition reimbursement. The current deal will offer massive increases for vouchers. For example, vouchers for private high schools will jump from around $9,000 per student to over $12,000. And this year, and as Kohlhaas explains for over a decade, the public schools have been getting effective state cuts. We have 14 years of public education being underfunded, and the increases that we've seen over those 14 years have fallen below inflation. So we have another two years under this budget where we're going to see a below inflation increases for our public education system. Over the course of time, with additional charter schools popping up, there has been legislation that is restricting what is happening in public schools that is making it more difficult for public schools to be able to do their job of educating all students. It makes it more difficult for the students to be a safe, welcoming environment, and it makes it really difficult for families to feel like the public school system is doing well. Kohlhaas sees a sustained movement by voucher and charter programs to actively undercut the quality of public schooling. About eight years ago, when we were in this massive nationwide movement of testing, testing, testing of students, and that students had to take a test every year in all of the different academic uh, programs, I was in the classroom at the time, and so there were days where literally that's all we were doing with kids was testing them. So I understand the appeal from parents to say, hey, I don't want my kids to have to go through this. I don't want my kids to have a learning environment that is like this. But what has happened with the lobbying for private and charter schools is that the lobbying is continuing to make public education less appealing with less resources, with less programming and support and funding. Finally, charters and vouchers are a hurtful distraction from supporting public education, says Kohlhaas. Unfortunately, what we are seeing right now is a conversation about where does the money go. Instead of having a conversation about what does public education need and how can we get that done? 
is talking about what is it that we need to have in order for our schools to be successful and how do we make that happen. That is the conversation that we should be having in this state, not trying to pit the public schools and our communities against each other, not trying to pit families against each other. That was Kim Kolhas, president of AFT Wisconsin. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. There has been a spate of proposed state laws intended to weaken child labor protections in multiple states, including Wisconsin. The Republican-led legislation in, legislation in these states purports to solve labor shortages challenges, but aligns with conservative opposition to any kind of government oversight of the workplace. Labor radio reporter Janine Ramsey spoke to Reed Mackey, the advocacy director for child labor at the National Consumers League and the Child Labor Coalition. What is going on with states that are changing their child labor laws? We are seeing a larger than usual number of states that are looking to weaken protections for teen workers. We're seeing both an attempt to lengthen the hours that kids can work, either on a day or weekly basis. But then we're also seeing some bills that would allow kids to work in hazardous workplaces. We saw a bill signed into law in Iowa that had some bad stuff in it about kids working in meat coolers and industrial laundries. The bill actually has language to allow kids to work in fireworks manufacturing. Now, we don't think there are any fireworks plants in Iowa, so we're not sure why it's in there. The initial versions of the bill wanted kids to work in meatpacking plants and the loading docks and in assembly areas. In Arkansas, a bill was signed into law that got rid of the work permit process for teen workers. And we thought that that permit process provided a really nice double check for parents and teens. It means that no longer will a state official be verifying the age of a prospective teen worker or looking at the list of work activities to discern if it's dangerous. As a result of that work permit process being eliminated, I think we're going to see kids in jobs they don't belong in and maybe kids that aren't the right age. What's behind this effort to weaken child labor laws? There was some reporting by the Washington Post that there is a shadowy think tank called the Foundation for Government Accountability that is writing some of these laws, and it's funded by a a right-wing billionaire. Some of the people supporting these bills are claiming that there's a labor shortage, but we don't think you can balance a labor shortage on the backs of teen workers. We think if you have a labor shortage, you probably need to raise wages, improve labor conditions. There's a likelihood that the changes to immigration policy is playing a role in the shortage of workers. It's been harder for adult immigrants to get into the country. There are people that might work in some of these less attractive jobs, but they can't, you know, because they can't get in. We do think that comprehensive immigration reform is probably necessary to make sure that the jobs get filled without having to resort to hiring teenagers to do them. One of the immigration changes has resulted in larger numbers of unaccompanied minors coming into the U.S. And these are the kids that seem to be ending up in the factory settings like meatpacking and auto supply. My understanding is that it's hard for those kids to get work permits to work legally. We realize that they might need some income. We'd rather 
see them in safer jobs, but also jobs that respect the hours like of the federal law, which is 18 hours during a school week. We'd like to see that maintained because otherwise kids' grades start to drop and their school completion drops. Some of these state laws are being pushed in the context of what we've been learning about children working in really dangerous places like meatpacking plants. You would think that the state legislators would say, okay, we cannot weaken protections right now. We need to do everything we can to beef them up. Instead, they've chosen the opposite approach. They haven't withdrawn these bills. They, they keep pushing for them to have passed this year. It's most unfortunate. Why do we have child labor laws? Before the Fair Labor Standards Act came along in the 1930s and codified federal protections against child labor, we saw millions of kids working in coal mines, We saw them working in factories, working 12-hour days. I think there was an awareness that this was robbing children of their futures. What can listeners do? Get engaged. Speak. There are groups like ours, the Child Labor Coalition, were pretty active on Twitter. They can amplify that with social media. They can talk to their local representatives and to their congressional representatives and urge them to back. There's currently about seven or eight bills in Congress that would help with this issue. That was Reed Mackey from the Child Labor Coalition. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. The Verona School District has been ordered to correct their disparate disparate treatment of female employees. The financial and administrative penalties will prevent further discrimination. The Verona Area School District will pay $450,000 to settle a pay discrimination lawsuit filed by the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, or EEOC, as reported by the federal agency. The settlement will raise salaries and furnish other relief to the employees. The school district violated civil rights law by paying nine female special education teachers and one female school psychologist lower wages than those recently hired. All nine special education teachers have experience comparable to or greater than their male colleagues. However, the school district paid them three to $7,000 than it paid the male teachers. The EEOC also charged that the school district paid a female school psychologist at least 16000 less a year than it paid her male colleague. The district outright rejected the special education teachers' and school psychologists' requests to raise their salaries to match those of their recently hired, more highly paid male co-workers. However, the school district repeatedly negotiated and agreed to salary increases sought by male teachers whose salaries were lower than those of newly hired, less experienced teachers. Such alleged conduct violates the Equal Pay Act of 1963, which prohibits discrimination in pay based on sex. The EEOC filed its suit in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Wisconsin after first attempting to reach a pre-litigation settlement through its conciliation process. In addition to the $450,000 in monetary relief, the four-year consent decree settling the suit requires Verona Area School District to raise the salaries of the women in the suit, review its pay policy, conduct anti-discrimination training, post a notice to employees at its work sites about the suit, and submit written reports twice a year to the EEOC. Diane Smasson, the EEOC's acting district director in Chicago, whose coverage includes the state of Wisconsin, said the following. More than 60 years after the Equal Pay Act, it is not only illegal but unacceptable to treat men and women differently when negotiating and settling pay. 
The EEOC will continue to vigorously investigate and enforce the law to make sure employees do not face such discrimination." Unquote. For more information on equal pay and compensation discrimination, listeners can visit the EEOC website. That's eeoc.gov to learn more about laws that protect workers from discrimination. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Wisconsin's civil service system had a birthday party last Saturday, and Labor Radio was there. Last Saturday at noon, with the surrounding streets packed for the weekly farmer's market, the steps of the State House were set up for a birthday party, the 118th birthday of the Wisconsin Civil Service System. The Raging Grannies opened with songs, and then Barbara Smith, one of the organizers of the event and a member of the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council AFT Local 4848, addressed the crowd. Civil Service is 118 years old today. Governor Bob LaFollette, fighting Bob LaFollette, signed the bill into law in 1905. Civil service was created to make state agencies serve the public, not partisan interests, not campaign donors. We need a stronger civil service system today. The current system is too open to bias and discrimination. We want a strong, impartial civil service, not arbitrary pay systems that open the door to favoritism. Birthday cake was handed out and local instructor Joy Chen got volunteers to perform a simple Chinese folk dance. Labor Radio talked further to Smith, who explained that, certainly in Wisconsin, public employee unions have historically embraced the civil service system as another line of worker protection. To Smith, the Scott Walker administration's notorious Act 10, eviscerating public sector unions in 2011, and its 2015 anti-union so-called right-to-work law, had another major legislative component in its anti-worker agenda, 2016's Act 150, which gutted the state's civil service system. Smith gave some details, starting with the effective end of civil service testing. Since Act 150 passed in 2016, there's no requirement to hire based on civil service exams. There's no requirement to do civil service exams. Where they're done, it's, it's discretionary, and so a lot of the hiring is done based on just resumes and interviews. Using resumes has been shown to be potentially open to bias and discrimination. They're too short to really get a good idea of the quality of the candidate, so what we're having is we're hiring lower quality candidates. We're not hiring the best. The very purpose of civil service laws is to hinder corrupt political deal-making and favoritism in hiring and carrying out public service. But that was hit hard by Act 150, says Smith. Another problem is that all of the HR functions were consolidated under Department of Administration, which is one of the most political agencies in the state. And there's a lot of fear that also weakens the system, opens the door to corruption. Also, there's a number of things in that act that basically hurt the ability of state employees to build a career. So it meant that they lost a lot of restoration rights, any kind of seniority rights, any kind of preference. So basically their experience with the state does not matter at all when they try to get a promotion. They're the same as any candidate right off the street. Smith described the reality that state civil service regulatory employees now work under. And, you know, we're going up against these huge, powerful corporations, and a lot of what state agencies do is to regulate those corporations. 
I don't think that somebody who has an uncertain job where they have to you know, walk on eggshells and be sure not to offend the big campaign donors, that's not the right environment in order to do strict regulation. That was Barbara Smith, the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council AFT Local 4848, speaking at Saturday's Civil Service Birthday Party. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Thousands of children and their parents may lose access to childcare in the next few weeks. Frank Anspank has the story. 87,425 Wisconsin children may lose childcare within the next few weeks, according to the Century Foundation. Two factors will contribute to this loss. At the state level, Republicans refused to include $340 million to fund child care accounts, a state organization that funds child care facilities. Meanwhile, at the national level, Republicans refused a continuation of the pandemic-related child care funds. The $24 billion disbursed in pandemic relief has been the largest investment in child care in U.S. history. Child care providers have used the money to raise teachers' pay, buy supplies, and pay mortgages. The result will be wage cuts and loss of employment for people who provide child cares as centers close or downsize. But current employees in the industry will not be the only ones affected, as parents are also at risk. Parents may be forced to leave their jobs due to either the total lack of child care or the high price. The high cost for child care may make employment a losing proposition for low-wage workers. Again, according to the Century Foundation, the total loss of income here in Wisconsin would be $232 million per year. The foundation also noted that earnings losses are just the tip of the iceberg. The foundation said that many of these parents will also, quote, face long-term consequences, unquote, such as less lifelong earnings, loss of recent retirement savings, or benefits and impacts on their child's well-being. Labor Radio will cover this issue in depth next week as the consequences of the budgetary decisions become clearer. I'm Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. The Teamsters and UPS are still in negotiations over a sweeping nationwide contract. Labor Radio has a report on what remains to be done. Negotiations continue in the nation's capital while the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and United Postal Service hash out a new contract that would cover approximately 340,000 workers across the country. Some progress has been made on the non-economic front as a tentative agreement on over 40 non-economic points was reached without, quote, having to sacrifice a single concession, according to Teamsters General Secretary-Treasurer Fred Zuckerman. While a possible settlement on non-economic issues has been negotiated, Teamsters President Sean O'Brien and the negotiating committee have expressed their continued displeasure with UPS's economic proposals. The most important outstanding issues for the Teamsters include full and part-time wage increases for all, health and welfare benefit protections and enhancements, pension increases, and the elimination of the controversial two-tiered system that divides workers into separate compensation classes. If consensus is not reached on the remaining points of contention between the sides, the Teamsters are prepared to walk off the job later this summer. Late last week, the Teamsters UPS workers voted with 97% approval to authorize a strike against the company if acceptable contract terms are not offered. UPS has until August 1st to present those terms before the strike begins. Coming out of negotiation sessions since the strike authorization, O'Brien had this to say about UPS's proposals. Quote, we have 39 days to go. This company is wasting time putting forth offensive proposals. If UPS wants to negotiate a contract for 1997 working conditions, they're going to get 1997 consequences, end quote. 
The National Negotiating Committee has also indicated that they will not agree to meet again until UPS has considerably enhanced their offer. Some information used in this story was provided courtesy of Frank Emsbeck. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Mike Bernhard. Thanks to editor Frank Emsbach, assistant Robin G, reporters Mike Bernhard, Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Hom, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, at damage control specialist Joanne Powers, and our newest reader, Madison Delia. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster Anu Lee, and to all of our readers and members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Madison Delier. We also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and Professor Bill Clark. <laughs>